The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. What Texas is doing uh, is we are adding uh, more razor wire as we speak right now to uh, make sure that we are doing even more to secure the border. We are going to make it uh, impossible to enter Texas illegally. Uh, and that includes uh, maintaining the National Guard on the border, building more border wall, just like what President Trump put up, as well as extending the razor wire wall in the state of Texas. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, that was... Uh... Governor Abbott on the border wall. Good afternoon. I'm Drew Mariani. Good to be with you today. Hope you can hang out with me for the next couple hours. We've got a lot to get into. Of course, pray the chaplet in about an hour. Uh, what a deal with a, another issue. We'll circle back to the border for you. But uh, there is a, a listener, actually is an attorney and has represented a lot of people on death row. Uh, who has written to me. And Phil, if you're listening, it's good to have you uh, out there. I know you, you're a great defender of life and human dignity. And um, he sent me a story about a man who uh, was up for execution uh, by the state of Alabama. And yesterday, Kenneth Eugene Smith was executed. Uh, it was done in a, a completely different way. And this is what is so bizarre. Maybe we'll look at this in greater detail in the days ahead. But Smith was convicted for the murder uh, I guess it was in the murder for hire death of a woman named Elizabeth Senate back in 1988. And uh, her husband was a pastor and paid a middleman $2,000 for two men to kill his wife. It's like something you'd see on the ID channel, right? It's like really two grand. That's all your wife is worth. You know, they make it look like a burglary. And that's what they did. They broke in. They made it look like it was a burglary. But what could go wrong, right? He wanted to, to do this because apparently he needed the money. He wanted he had insurance money uh, to pay some debts. So he thought, okay, I'll put a policy on my wife and make it look like somebody robbed and killed her, and I'll be on my merry way. Well, eventually, Smith got caught. Uh, he has two trials, and in the second one, the jurors voted 11 to 1 that he should spend the rest of his life in prison. And let me just underline that. 11 to 1, a majority of the jurors said this man should spend the rest of his life in prison. The presiding judge overruled that decision, and he imposed the death penalty. So even though the jury says life in prison, the judge says no, we're putting him to death. Here's a report from Fox News on the proceedings of the execution. Uh, warning for those of you who may be squeamish or you have your children around, uh, I would ask you to please pray for the soul of Kenneth Smith, for the souls of all those uh, that are now awaiting death or involved in the death penalty proceedings like this. Here's uh, that report. Uh, Kenneth Smith was pronounced dead by the state of Alabama, as we mentioned, by uh, using nitrogen hypoxia, the first death row inmate here in the country uh, to be executed using this method. According to Corrections Commissioner John Hamm, who spoke to the media just a short time ago, he said there wasn't anything out of the ordinary uh, that happened here. And he says it took place in his estimation. This execution took place in his estimation, according to plan. But he did say that Smith appeared 
appeared to be holding his breath at the beginning uh, when they started this execution. According to the five media witnesses uh, who saw this, they say it appeared Kenneth Smith was conscious for several minutes uh, into this execution. They say he shook and writhed on the gurney, then eventually took several deep breaths before his uh, breathing started to slow down. As we mentioned, he was pronounced dead a short time later by the state of Alabama at 8.25 Central Time here in Atmore at Holman Correctional Facility. Sounds like an unpleasant way to die. Uh, you know it's coming. You know that the nitrogen gas are going to use. And by the way, first time ever done this way is this going to suffocate you to death. That was They tried to kill him before. They tried to execute him by lethal injection in the past, but the executors, they couldn't find his veins. I mean, how horrifying is that, too? There you are, strapped down, ready to go to your death. For some reason, they just can't get the lethal injections into you. So you're given another opportunity here, and now they use a new form of execution. Uh, nitrogen, by the way, just as a side note, it's sometimes used in assisted suicide, but there were numerous objections to the state doing this. There, there were some saying using Smith, uh, you know, to execute a man like this, he's basically a guinea pig. But the court turned down a last-minute appeal, and the method appears to have worked as officials intended. Uh, normally, you, you're passed out, right? And then you're put to death. But apparently, he was holding his, his breath before this could, uh, this could put him to death. Uh, we'll talk more about the death penalty. I know people are deeply divided over this issue. I, I'm of the camp that all life is sacred from the moment of death, the moment of birth through natural death. Moment of conception through natural death is really what I should say. Um, and I think there's an evolution in the theology of this too. Monsignor uh, Sweatland, who's been a great contributor to this program over the years, makes that case. And you also see it in the writing of of, of our current Holy Father, current Pope as well. But uh, we can talk about it in greater detail. Let me get you some other news too, because we've got a lot to get into today. Uh, Israel, I don't know if you're following what's going on over there, the world, court, the world court today. They ruled that Israel was to abide by the rules of war and avoid any genocide against the Palestinians, just claims that, look, the death toll to the Palestinians, I, there, were, there was footage that went viral of, uh, you know, some non-combatants that were just killed. You know, I think they were waving a white flag or something, and they, for some reason, were shot. Uh, people are really concerned about the death toll over there. In fact, South Africa had brought a suit to the UN-related, you know, they, they basically claimed that Israel was carrying out genocide against the people in Gaza. Here's a little audio from the International Court of Justice declaring that Palestinians have a right to be protected from acts of genocide. And they're calling Israel to take all the measures within its power to prevent those actions. Take a listen to this. The state of Israel shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts described in point one above. The state of Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. The State of Israel shall take immediate and effective measures to ensure the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Half, I said to you before, half of the Gaza Strip is rubble, right? It's just buildings have either been destroyed or, or have been bombed. Um, and there's some argue there's famine underway right now, and still a lot of innocent people are losing their life. South Africa wanted the court to order an immediate ceasefire. They thought maybe the international court could do that. But um, 
they didn't want to. Uh, Ed Marcy, who's a contributor on this radio program, he writes for Hot Air. Uh, he says the court completely ignored the fact that Hamas, they want to kill all the Jews in Israel, right? That's their mindset. He says that they're going to carry out the October 7th attacks as many times as it takes to get rid of the Jews. So, you know, on the other side, you got Israel saying, look, we want to eradicate Hamas, and then we can, then we'll stop. It's all about the eradication of Hamas in, in their eyes. Um, we'll see, though. A lot of innocent people are still dying. It's hard. I don't blame Israel. I mean, if somebody came across, kidnapped your loved ones, you know, and, and massacred people uh, and a group of terrorists, cell, Al-Qaeda, whoever it is, we'd certainly want to get rid of that entity. Um, but it all has got to be done in balance, too. How do you do that? A lot of international pressure now coming on Israel. So that story will continue to unfold. Uh, here in our own state, here in our own country, uh, let's talk about Texas for just a moment, right? Half of the governors of the United States have signed a letter to support Governor Abbott. You heard Governor Abbott in the very beginning. They like the actions he's taking to secure the southern border. He said, hey, that's it. And by the way, uh, illegal migration across those points he secured, it's dwindled to almost nothing, right? And, and the thing that struck me the most is what Abbott said the other day. I heard him say, look, there's 26 legal points of entry. You're right. Go there. Right? Go there. I mean, why are you coming through the backyard, right? So they put up all this razor ribbon. You know the story, right? We talked about it at length yesterday. You probably heard it. Um, Montgomery County, Texas residents, a guy named Jonathan Holohan, uh, who is defending Governor Abbott's action. And here's some audio of the interview he did. He was on Fox a little bit earlier. Check out uh, this exchange. It started back in 2022 with uh, Goliad, Terrell County, and Kinney County. Uh, really reaching out and crying out and saying, look, we need help. We're being overwhelmed. We're being invaded. Um, and they're citing the ultimate authority of the, the law of the land, the Constitution of the United States. And you see Governor Abbott's response, the letter he put out, he's invoking those constitutional provisions, which is the, the supreme law of the land. I mean, it overrides any statute, any regulation, any failure by the current administration. It's the Constitution. And the framers actually envisioned this. They envisioned where the states uh, would need to invoke that invasion clause because they were guaranteed the right to sovereignty, the right to security, the right to protect their, the lives and property of their citizens. And the fentanyl pouring over, the uh, the scourge of, you know, these criminal activities that are coming over really at the, at the behest of transnational criminal organizations uh, is has to be repelled. It has to be stopped. Yeah, so you've got governors agreeing. Right. And and here's what the governors wrote in the letter. They said, instead of upholding the rule of law and securing the border, the Biden administration has attacked and sued Texas for stepping up to protect American citizens from historic levels of illegal immigrants and deadly drugs like fentanyl and terrorists that are entering the country. Now, all the governors, I shouldn't say all of them, because the only Republican governor who did not sign was Phil Scott of Vermont. So I'm sure. I'll probably come around. I would hope so. But, of course, Texas is in this dispute with the federal government over the placement of this razor, razor ribbon, this concertino uh, wire that they have. And um, it's – look, I wouldn't cross. They've got layers and layers of this stuff right now. And it's kept a lot of illegal migrants from coming into the country. There was a House Democrat. Uh, Henry Quaylar, uh, who's warning that the border crisis could cause the president his um, his election. 
some are saying this could backfire on the Republicans, though, too. Um, listen to this. Is it possible? Is it possible that uh, this crisis is so big? It's the number one issue in the country right now. I don't know how that'll be 10 months, 11 months from now right now. But uh, this uh, Democrat uh, from from Texas says, yeah, Biden's going to be in trouble with this. Listen. If they're looking at the same polls I've been looking at, the American public doesn't like what's happening. Uh, I represent an area uh, where it's almost 80 percent Hispanic, uh, a lot of Democrats. There's some Democrats that would tell me I'm voting for you, Henry, but I'm voting Republican because of the border issue. So, yeah, the polls are showing that it's an important issue. And I think it's if you want to talk about politics to the president's best interest politically to come up with a solution on border security. Uh, he went on to say, you know, Democrats regularly tell him, you know, they will vote Republican in November in order to take care of the border crisis. And when you're living there in Texas or Arizona or some of these border states, uh, you know, suddenly it becomes very real to you in the color of somebody's party. You know, uh, if they're not doing the job, you'll you'll switch colors. That's for sure. Uh, Ted Cruz, uh, he did an interview uh uh, recently with our friends over at Hot Air, he laid into really what he's calling a just a, a disgraceful neglect from this particular administration. And he says it's more than just drugs coming over. It has led to a humanitarian crisis. The Biden border crisis is an absolute humanitarian disaster. And Democrats don't care. Last year, 853 migrants died crossing illegally into this country. Alejandro Mayorkas didn't even know how many had died because he didn't care. When I brought 19 senators down to the border, we saw a man who had drowned floating in the Rio Grande. Democrats don't care. Last year, thousands upon thousands of children were brutalized and sexually assaulted by human traffickers, and Democrats don't care. Last year, thousands of women were sexually assaulted by human traffickers. And last year, more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses from Chinese fentanyl flooding across the southern border. Now, you may say, oh, come on, that's harsh. They care. They care. Somewhere in their hearts, they care about all the people suffering and dying. Baloney. Because if they cared, they would stop it. If you cared about the children being raped at the border, you would say no more. When Joe Biden came in, we had the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. He inherited success and he deliberately broke it. Democrats want these open borders. And this bill, this mysterious bill that is buried down in the basement of Chuck Schumer's office, all of you has a, have a living as reporters. Ask yourself, why have you not read the text of the bill? There's a reason. As bad as we think the bill is, I promise you it's worse. The people pushing this deal knew, no, if the American people knew what was in it, they would be against it. This supplemental bill is a kamikaze plane in a box canyon with no exit headed for a train wreck. You look at this bill. The bill is not designed to fix this problem. By the way, the single greatest national security threat to America... This right here. I think the odds of a major terrorist attack in the United States are higher today than they've been any time since September 11th. You know what? In that spike, how many Hamas terrorists are there? How many Hezbollah terrorists are there? And what are we going to say when they carry out an attack here like October 7th in Israel? Bravo, Senator Cruz. I, passionate, articulate, on point. It is humanitarian crisis, and I think it is a homeland security threat I, my, my wife and i were watching the news this morning i was having a cup of coffee getting ready for the show and and I, I, 
I saw a couple different reports come out, and Maggie and I the other day were talking about how one citizen took a cell phone camera out and interviewed somebody who was crossing the the border illegally and says, "What do you? Who are you? And what are you doing?" He says, "You'll know who I am soon enough." And when they uploaded that video, they took a look at it. He says, "Everyone will know who I am." Um, it was a terrorist from, uh, you know, Azerbaijan, you know, he's, I think he was on the terror watch list. I mean, I, I think what's going to happen just like the, the shoe bomber, just like the underwear bomber, right now you got to take your belt off when you go through security, you got to take your shoes off, um, because somebody tried to use those devices to take down a plane. We're going to see something happening to our power grid or to a dam or to some reservoir water supply or Something that's to a building that's going to happen, and it's going to be a wake-up call that we've left our back door unlocked and wide open. And uh, I think Senator Ted Cruz was right. One final point on this, and Phil Flynn's going to be stopping, but I want to get into him quickly here. There was a uh, city councilman in Chicago, in a suburb of Chicago, Naperville is the area. It's, it's an affluent Democratic stronghold. And he suggested that a at a city meeting, right, that a sign-up sheet for people to volunteer to house some of the migrants who have been bused to the areas there. And thousands of people are, are coming to S- Chicago, uh, Sanctuary City, um, from areas like Texas. The pressure's now on because it's cold in that part of the world. You know, there's snow and freezing temperatures. And Josh McBroom, he told the council this. He says, I think we live in a compassionate community. My idea would be let's find out who's willing to help. Uh, we do have an affluent community and a lot of big homes. Um, so Broom told that at the, to Todd Starnes yesterday. Uh, last I heard, nobody signed up. <laughs> nobody signed up. I think they were incentivizing people in New York. I mean, they would pay you money to to bring somebody in. Uh, I'm sure if there was a financial incentive that might change. But uh, look, we'll continue to follow the story. There's a lot of very moral and humanitarian aspects we got to keep our our eyes on and try to mitigate some of just the political view and, and language that you sometimes hear. But another issue, very quickly, today the White House and the Department of Energy, uh, they halted the permitting process for several proposed liquefied natural gas or LNG terminals. And this is big news. Uh, Phil Flynn was on the air earlier today addressing this, and we reached out to him. He's going to be jumping on the air with me here in a second. Um, just to give you a little background on it, the terminals are, are built for exporting gas. Right to that our country produces. Well, you know the Biden administration hates that, right? <laughs> we got to go green. Environmental groups have been calling for a halt to their permitting process, claiming that look, it's going to contribute to more you know, pollution. It's going to contribute to climate change. There was an activist who said that it would also lead actions to you know what brought the shutdown of the Keystone XL pipeline at the very start of the Biden administration if those permits weren't withdrawn. Well, uh, this isn't just an international or an internal U.S. problem. Shortly after this, Russia, yeah, shortly after Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, what happened? President Biden promised European allies, especially Germany, remember this, that we would help fill the gap that was left by uh, by this war, the Europeans reducing their dependency on Russian gas. The EU has been trying to do that for a while because they knew how vulnerable they, they were to the winds of Vladimir Putin, but they had not been able to find a good, reliable partner until the U.S. started producing more of it. Of course, the Biden administration has also been trying to get rid of a gas appliances in, in Chicago, right? And in, 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 well, really in the country, there's a proposal in Chicago that would ban all gas appliances in new buildings. So if you like those high-end stoves, 
You better think twice. Phil Flynn joins me today. I'm, I'm scratching the surface of this. We'll, we'll drill into this a little bit deeper. He's senior market out, uh, analyst and author of the Energy Report at the Price Futures Group. Check him out at pricegroup.com. Also a contributor to Fox Business. Phil, thank you for making time for us today. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. It's great to be back with you, Drew. Yeah, it's always a delight to talk to you. Uh, this is a, a really interesting de development. The fact that we are planning to build these terminals means that we must have enough gas to go around. Why did the Biden administration halt those permits? What, what's the impetus behind this and what are our partners thinking? Well, number one, I think it's because they believe TikTok social influencers. Wow. I am not kidding you, Drew. There is a report that the Biden administration uh, met with a 25-year-old social influencer who who said that that, that he was going to come out about uh, come out against you know LNG exports and tell all his followers to 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 come out against uh, these plans to approve liquefied natural gas exports and the Biden administration reportedly gave in to him um, not just him but you know groups like the Sierra Group um, and and the funny thing about this Drew and you and I have talked about this before you know these type of actions actually don't help the planet. In fact, you know, uh, they're talking about doing a report to see if this is going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I can save them time. It's going to actually add to greenhouse gas emissions because liquefied natural gas is the main reason we're able to keep the lights on and replace dirtier forms of energy like petroleum and coal. Yeah. I'm also concerned about our commitment to to our allies, Phil. Uh, Phil, the uh, a lot of people say, "Hey, this is detrimental to energy security, to international commitments, especially in light of these uh, energy demands in Europe and Asia." To you know, and the effort really to reduce dependence on on Russian national gas supplies. Um, what, what's happening there? I, I know that the Energy Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm emphasized that. This is part of a broader commitment to affordable energy and economic opportunities and climate protection. I don't see how you can have both. You can have both. And I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, for, for years, the United States has really developed uh, our natural gas industry. You know, one point, I remember when Alan Greenspan said the biggest threat to the U.S. economy was our inability to produce natural gas. That was like a wake-up call for the U.S. energy industry, and they found ways to do it. And now we're the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. Now, think of this, Drew. How would we feel in this country if Saudi Arabia tomorrow willy-nilly said, you know what? Yeah. You know, we're worried about the climate. We're going to cut off all of our oil exports. Right. What would that do to our economy? Right. So you can imagine how our partners are feeling today. Yeah, no kidding. My guest today, Phil Flynn, and uh, if you want to join us, we have a few moments. It's 888 914-9149, 888-914-9149. Just on another side note, because uh, I know we only have a couple of minutes here, you hail from the, the state of Illinois. Uh, Chicago has become one of those latest local governments to think about restricting gas appliances. There was a lot of talk of that in New York. Do you think electricity is going to be able to make up for 40% of of the energy market. I, I don't see how that can be, and uh, I've got concerns about our power grid, amongst other things, but this move to limit gas, um, how do you see that playing out with the demand for energy uh, coming from electricity? It's going to be a, a, a disaster, 
this movement towards electrifying everything, it's, it's impossible. And even if it were possible, it's going to make energy so much more expensive for everybody. Just look around, you know, the Chicago area. People are struggling to, to meet their bills. Yeah. You know, the city has had an economic hit post-COVID, um, and, and the city's dying. We've got crime rising. We've got major companies that have been in Chicago for years leaving. And now you, you put a proposal like this, which is going to make more people leave. And, and the thing is, is that if you look at the, the power grid, um, it's not unsustainable uh, for everything to be electric. And it's going to take billions of dollars of investment. What it's going to do for the people in Chicago, it's going to make electricity and normal things like heat, you know, too, too unaffordable for most of the people. And it's going to really put more burden on the poor of the city of Chicago. And this is why these Democrat-led cities are running their cities into the ground. It's because of these do-good policies that actually do bad. Phil, final thoughts for me, too, just to what we're seeing here with LNG, these exports. Um, how's the U.S. going to I don't know, fulfill its energy commitments to its allies and support global decarbonization at the same time. How, how will that influence future investment in renewable energy and clean technologies are going to, how does all this work? What do you see coming is maybe what I'm trying to get at. I think it's another blow to our international credibility. You know, when we promise the world, we're going to step up to the, to the plate, be a, a reliable energy supplier to the world you know, to help their economy and keep them safe, you know, why would they believe us, right? And you can't continue to play politics with these important issues. Yes, we have to be good stewards of the planet. We have to be concerned about that. But you can't make these short-sighted political decisions that do more damage than good. Your your thoughts on a change in administration? We know where Biden stands on this. How will that affect things? Well, if Donald Trump is drill, 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 and he's elected, I mean, that has been his mantra, and it will change dramatically. And and I listen, the U.S. energy industry has done amazing things despite all of the, the hurdles that the Biden administration has put in their place. You know, if they're left alone and let them do what they do best, yeah. you're going to see the most inexpensive, uh, cleanest energy in the world. Wow. But the government keeps getting in the way, and when they do, it, bad things happen. Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you for your contribution here. It's always good to hear your voice and see you on television. Appreciate what you do there. If people want to get connected to you. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can just uh, you know email me at pflinnapricegroup.com. I promise everybody a free energy report. It costs you nothing. <laughs> That's awesome. Nothing. You know, Drew, Drew's picking up the charge. You got it. It's so, all me. Free, free money, free, free stuff for everybody. Thank hey, you. Phil, thanks. Thanks, Have a Eddie. great one. That's Phil Flynn. It's bottom of the hour. I need to take a short break. When we come back, I've got some news for you. Pope Francis today uh, addressed the dicastery for the doctrine of faith, and he spoke about these blessings. Remember, got a lot of controversy. I'll fill you in on what he had to say. Plus, we'll talk about the rise of the nuns and so much more. I'm back with more right after this. Your news. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Your news now. I've never really been into organized religion. My parents made it a point to not bring it up when my sisters and I were growing up. I had grown up so Christian and lived in the church practically every Sunday. But as I grew, I realized that I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't. 
Honestly, I never felt anything sitting in a house of worship. Data shows that more and more young people are leaving organized religion each year. So what's going on here and where are they turning to for guidance instead? The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, I want to fill you in on a new Pew Research survey that was done. They have their latest survey on American beliefs. That'll be coming up in a second, along with Father Paul Solins. You can, of course, join us here as well. That, of course, um, gosh, is the voice of, you know, of, uh, of many Americans today. Unfortunately, all of us, I think, have loved ones, siblings, friends that have fallen away from the faith. Perhaps, you know, your children have. Maybe you have. We'll talk about it today. You know, what is making this mass exodus? Uh, we'll break it all down for you. Before I do, I saw a report. You know, we talked a lot about the, um, oh, the document about blessing same-sex weddings or, or that's it. It wasn't weddings, marriages or couples. Um, the document, of course, has been, you know, read as an attempt to, to open the church's practice to blessing same-sex couples. Well, the Pope today came out and he said that these blessings don't require moral perfection to receive them. He says this, quote, when a couple spontaneously approaches and asks for a blessing for the priest, it's it's not blessing the union. It's just blessing the people who together have requested it. So he dressed the dicastery for the doctrine of faith at their annual plenary assembly today. And he spoke about the sacraments. He spoke about human dignity. He spoke about evangelization. And he addressed that very controversial document that dealt with with blessings. So just putting that on your radar, we'll continue to follow the story. You know, I was thinking about this. As I said, Father Sullivan is going to be joining me. When our nation was founded, um, it was rare that you would find anyone who claimed not to have a particular belief, right, or not, not have some sort of religion. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, the founding fathers, uh, you, know, you, you could find... You know, some of them were deists, some held somewhat agnostic beliefs, but they believed in a deity. And if their beliefs weren't in line with basic Christian principles, okay, there still was a belief in a higher power, right? John Adams, he said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That's what will make America great. They assumed that people could govern themselves because the vast majority of the population had some morality. They had a moral and religious outlook. When you reject God, right, when you stray from those, those principles of virtue, I think we're, we're a nation in trouble, right? We need to get back to that. So Pew always does these studies. They did another survey on American beliefs. So where are we right now? What they found is that there are more people in the country today who say they have no particular belief, no particular religion, I, I refer to them as the N-O-N-E-S's, the nuns, right? Back in 2007, they made up about 16% of the of Americans. The new survey that is out says that number has risen to 28% of Americans. So it's on the increase, almost one out of three. And Catholics, of course, we've been the, the, the largest single belief group in the country for decades. I often said, oh, the second largest would be the nuns. Not anymore. Evangelical Protestants, right? They had been number two. Now, unfortunately, we're seeing this number rise. Why is the question? You know, why, why, why? Father Paul Sullins joins me today. He's an emeritus professor of sociology at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. He right now serves as senior research associate at the Ruth Institute. That's a great group. I'm going to get you plugged into a wonderful resource. Go to ruthinstitute.org. 
you got questions about marriage, about life, about a whole lot of other things, uh, you'll find uh, great resources there. Father, good to have you back. Good afternoon. It is great to be with you, Drew. It's a beautiful day. So what do you see going on? I mean, why do these well, numbers continue to climb? Well, uh, you know, if you think in the long term, uh, we're in a culture of modernity, and the uh, force of modernity is to unbundle things, to separate things apart. So it used to be you'd get married, and that was a collection of a whole range of things. You'd get a job, you'd get a house, you'd have children, you'd have a sex relationship. Now all those things are unbundled. You can do one of those without necessarily doing the others. And so what's happening is people used to have spirituality that was centered in their religious institutions. Yeah. And now that's getting unbundled. And people can be what this Pew result call, uh, research calls them, spiritual but not religious, right. SBNR, which, which is a little different than the N-O-N-E-S. There's, <laughs> there's another group, that near, neither spiritual nor religious, yeah. which would be the nuns. They're nothing. Yeah. Uh, but they're smaller than this group that is spiritual but not religious, and most of them have uh, wandered away from a religious um, institution, organization. Uh, Catholicism uh, doesn't do as well retaining them as uh, evangelical Protestants, but we're not as bad as some of the, some of the other groups. Um, and um, the spiritual but not religious folk um, tend to be younger. Um, it's predominantly under uh, the age of 50, and if they're under the age of 30, the, the ones who have become more spiritual over time, 40% of them come, become more spiritual. Uh, under 20% have become more religious. It's the opposite for those who are older over the age of 60. Um, and and the um, spiritual but not religious tend to be a little more um, educated, um, and um, they tend to be overwhelmingly, wait for it, Democrats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah. Uh, the ones who are religious and spiritual uh, tend to be uh, the, the opposite of all those things. So let's talk about that for a moment, because uh, Father, I yeah. think it's fascinating. My guest today, by the way, Father Paul Sullins, if you want to join us, 888 the growth of the nuns, NOAs, yep. as well as the FSPRs, yep. it has implications for, for American public life, particularly in politics. And Absolutely. this was striking to me. I didn't really give much thought to the political dynamic here until seeing some of these surveys. Uh, as you <clears> point <throat> out, they're predominantly liberal and, and democratic. Yep. And yep. The, the question I raise is, with the expansion of this group, the, the growth of this group, how could that influence mm -hmm. electoral politics, uh, considering right now the, the political power that, let's say, white evangelicals currently have? And that's waning right now. Um, they, they tend to be less racially diverse, uh, more male, if, I, if I'm correct on yep. this, right? With atheists mm -hmm. and agnostics, um, you, know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, making up the group. How, how will it influence politics in this country? Well, it influences it hugely. Uh, because the, the uh, moral identity, you might say, is becoming realigned by political affiliation and not so much by religious affiliation. I mean, if, it, if you ask somebody, what is your religious denomination, and they told you, and then you ask them, what is your political party, and they told you, which of those two answers would tell you more about the way they view the world? 
it would be the second one mm-hmm. by far. Uh, to know whether someone is Republican or Democrat, and then whether they're committed Democrat, committed Republican, they vote for the parties and all, uh, uh, all of that, that's going to tell you much more about how they view the world and where their, their moral stances on issues than knowing whether they're Lutheran or Baptist or Episcopalian or, or Catholic even. Um, so we're seeing the um, reshaping of our moral and uh, our valuational life along political lines. Um, And that uh, that is a lot of things, but it can be very troubling because what's happening is that we have a growth of those who say, well, I have my political identity. I'm, uh, it, the, the survey showed there are people who are involved in community groups and in uh, intentional groups to make society better instead of being involved in churches. So people are aligning more and more in, in a kind of secular ideology that does have certain values and certain distinctions of values, but leaves God behind. Uh, leaves a spiritual life particularly behind. These folk who are spiritual and not religious in the Pew survey, 2% of them go to church regularly. Wow. Think about it. 2%. That's basically none. They've given up on organized religion. I also feel the younger ones, that organized religion is, can be a malevolent force, that yeah, it's yeah. not necessarily positive. Yeah. Uh, a substantial uh, minority of them. In fact, let me play uh, a piece of audio, Maggie. Let's let's run number um, uh, number eight. Here's an interview that NBC did, Father, with a, a young man okay. about his faith life, and he says that when Scripture <laughs> that condemns was... condemns others, it, it turns him off and, and away from yeah. religion in general. Listen to this. My grandmother was the one that took on that primary responsibility of teaching us all about Christianity. Charles is a grad student at Ohio University. Were there any positive lessons that you took away from Christianity growing up? Yeah, um, those common ones that you always hear, like love thy neighbor or um, less like biblical stories that would talk about giving back. I think those are lessons that like I got from the church, but you can pretty much get from anywhere and they can it can apply no matter what the source is. As I got older, I started to ask more questions about the parts of our religion that didn't necessarily make sense right off the bat to me. Um, and if there was a logical answer, then I was willing to accept it. It was those parts that couldn't necessarily be explained away or were tied to some sort of like hate or judgment towards others, that's when things started to change. So how do we get this generation of people to think this way? Is that a failure of catechesis? Is it a, a failure of, of education? Um, yes. Is it the culture that's polluting their minds? I mean, I, I, I don't know. How do we, how do they come to that, that kind of logic or rationale? It's all of those things. It's a toxic mix. Um, and, um, you know, I feel for this young man. Now, yeah, I could, I'm could. i inferring from his voice that he's white. Uh, 69% of those are neither spiritual nor religious. And I, I would put him in that category. I don't know if he'd describe himself as spiritual anymore. Uh, he's in grad school, so he's highly educated. He's young. Uh, um, so he fits the profile of these neither spiritual nor He's male. Uh, 60% of them are male. So he fits the profile of the neither spiritual nor religious. And these are folks that, I, if we look from a Catholic framework, 
they've grown up without any formation in the faith or any moral formation. That they've just been left on their own, and so they imbibe moral values from popular media. God help them. Um, they, and, and of course, that's a, a, a quagmire of arguments, uh, sometimes very blatant arguments about different uh, moral positions, and sometimes extreme moral positions, and people calling each other hateful, and and um, he reflects that sadly. Well, Father, hold the thought. I need to take a short pause. When we come back, I want your take also on um, the fact that, you know, two out of five or about 41% of U.S. adults report that they've grown more spiritual throughout their lives. I'm interested as to what you right. found is driving that, because that can be a positive yeah. if it is in the right direction. That, your calls, and much more when I return. Stay with me. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy, live, coming up. You're listening to The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, just a few minutes away. If you want to get in, feel free to do that. You can always call someone else, too. Send them a text, an email, tweet. And let them know we're about to pray. We'll get this huge, this uh, beautiful spiritual family together, and we'll pray for each other coming up in about 10 minutes. If you're just joining me, Taking a look at the spiritual movement within the country, I, and I'm a big believer that if we want the United States of America, this great nation that God, I believe, has blessed from sea to shining sea, to prosper and, and to lead the rest of the world to him, that we need to be people of virtue. When we stray from that path, what happens? Well, chaos happens, right? We, we, we see disorientation. We see the problems with the culture of life and with gender and a whole litany of other things. Uh, we need a virtuous people. Uh, to have, I think, a successful future. And Pew Research did a uh, several surveys taking a look at the rise of uh, the, you know, the SBRs and the nuns. And there was also another study that came out, and they found a trend in American spirituality and in religiosity over time. They say that 41% of U.S. adults say they've grown more spiritual throughout their lives. And I don't know where you are. I know that when you're young, you test the faith, you may stray from the faith. But ultimately, I think when you start having kids or when life's perspective changes, maybe you realize there's, there's more to it than the fleeting and temporal pleasures of this uh, of this world. Uh, my guest today is uh, a good friend of the show, Father Paul Sullins, and it's always great to have him here with us today. You can check him out at the Ruth Institute there, and he serves uh, that organization, has been serving it now for a while as a uh, a senior research associate. And, and, and Father, your thought on the evolution of people, you know, not necessarily coming back to church, but becoming more sensitive to the spiritual. What is it as you get older that does that? And how do we redirect that to just a follow-up on that to bring them back into the beauty and the truth of our faith, the church? Yeah. Well, that comes through strongly in these uh, survey findings that we've been talking about. Uh, 81% of adults uh, in the U.S. believe that there's something spiritual beyond the natural world, even if we can't see it or understand it. And um, the uh, growth is in the spiritual but not religious, which is interesting because most of these, a, a large proportion of these folks uh, are spiritual. They never darken the doors of a church, but they still claim religious affiliation, a, a religious identity. So they're, they're not becoming so much nuns as becoming 
uh, I hate to say the term rhinos, right? Religious in name only. Uh, and, and so the, the um, connection to a religion is becoming attenuated, but it's still there. Many of them still believe in God. They describe spiritual experiences, and they go through the list of things that people do instead of uh, organized religion. They uh, do meditation, they do exercise, they do community events and uh, build bonds with other people in lots of ways. So there is still a spiritual core in the human being in our country that cannot be erased. It is, as the scriptures say, it's in the moral law. Uh, and everyone knows it somehow, uh, and responds to it somehow. Uh, the challenge for Catholics and other uh, religious groups is to recover, actually, in the Catholic faith, that sense of spirituality. Because uh, when people go to church, they don't find it. They find, you know, activity, they find hypocrisy, they find increasingly what they define as hatred, uh, they find rules, they find uh, people uh, f- being pharisaical uh, f- yeah. against other people. Uh, young people complain about this all the time, and they say, I, who needs it? I don't need it. They, in the Catholic Church, we have to be honest, they find uh, uh, moral hypocrisy about sex abuse, bishops talking out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, and so what, bring, what makes that grow over a person's lifetime is is living life, and you can't live life beyond a certain age and realize that you're not self-sufficient morally and emotionally. You, you need something more than yourself. Father, uh, I, I want to thank. Uh, no, go ahead. I don't want to step in. Yeah. Right, just some final thoughts uh, for you. I'm, I'm grateful for you, for your time today, but I, I've got to wrap it up in about a minute here. So, okay. If people about want to follow minute, you. Well, it's, it's RuthInstitute.org, but, but final thoughts for me on, on this issue. It's something you and I have been tracking and following, and yeah. you and I will continue to yeah. break it down. Uh, you know, we have all the failures of catechesis and so on, but what we really need to do, especially with young people, is to bless them and welcome them, is to show them real love and real acceptance. The rest is going to follow. Now, uh, I know that it, there's a new, we're talking about fiducia supplicans, this, this kind of uh, confusing and not, not very enlightening uh, statement from the Holy Father. Um, uh, it's not something I can figure out myself. Personally, I don't know how I could bless two, a, a, a same-sex couple without blessing their same-sex coupling. Yeah. I can't un, undo that. I think it would create great confusion. So I, I don't say that critically. I'm just saying I don't know how to do that. But I, I really am. I really support the impulse of Pope Francis that we need to bless them. We need to welcome them. We need to say to persons, and I, I, I would have, have no trouble doing this with individuals uh, and say to them in any form of life. Mm -hmm. God loves you, and He Mm -hmm. loves you the way you are. He delights in you. Uh, He loves you so much, He may want you to become better than you are, Uh, but He loves you, and we want to love you and welcome you. That message that is at the heart of Pope Francis, I think, is really great, and Mm -hmm. we should affirm that even while we're saying, you know, this this statement didn't do a very good job. It, it's I think it's really well and, said. You know, I, I, I yeah. couldn't agree with you more. I, I mean, yeah. you're not going to bring anyone to the truth 
if you can't engage in a di dialogue with them? What do they say? You can't right. let people know how much God loves them until they know that they're loved, or how much you love them until, yes. you know. So you, you've got to you got to lead with that. Right. You, know, you got to let them know you care and and, and, and speak the truth, and at the same time, you know. And I I I, I commend you for that. I think it's an excellent position, Father. Father, thank you so much for being here. I'm grateful for it. We're about to pray the chaplet. So. Wonderful to be with you, Drew. God bless you. you. God, God bless, bless your you. listeners. That's Father Paul Solonson. Like he's so right. I mean, love and charity. I often try to view others in their relationships and their situations in terms of how Christ would, right? I mean, what would Christ do with the prostitute or the tax collector? How are we to treat others? Um, I, you know, I've got a brother-in-law who is a, I guess he's an atheist. I mean, he, he was raised, I think, Methodist or something along those lines. And and I love him. He's a good guy. Um, but he questions the reality of God. And, you know, we were talking about Father Paul Solon's about this. I mean, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of bad examples, a lot of a lot of stuff that's drawn a lot of people away. And, and maybe you're in that camp. Maybe you're wondering if God is real or if he's relevant to your life, whether or not you need him, whether or not he's just a construct of your of human imagination designed to give us some comfort in our time of need. But I want to talk about that just for a moment, right? Let's dive into why God is not just a possibility, but why he's a reality. You might be listening and saying, ah, I don't believe in God. You know, I ask you, I, you know, I don't want you to, I want you to believe that you don't have to abandon reason, right? You, to believe in God. In fact, I think it's a tool of discovery. Imagine for a moment you're standing, and I, and I was thinking about this earlier as I knew we'd be talking about this. Imagine you're standing before a masterpiece, right? This beautiful, exquisite painting takes your breath away because it's so beautiful. It's got you know complexity and intricacy. I don't think you for a second would doubt that there was an artist behind that, right? Somebody who envisioned it, crafted it, painted it, brought it into being. And I say, you look around, look at the universe, look at its laws, look at its order, look at the sheer wonder of life itself. Can all of this, can all this really be without a creator or an intelligent designer, right? That The beauty of our faith and reason is that they're not, they're not, they're not opposites, they're not enemies of one another, but they're allies. They're allies in the quest for truth. And if you are searching for God, if you are wondering if what you're hearing here is true, I, I just want to tell you, use reason. It'll lead you to the door of faith, and it will unlock those questions that you might have, and it will answer those doubts. Faith opens that door, and I want to invite you into that relationship with God. You know, I guarantee you, you're going to get all the answers you're looking for. God's not a distant figure. He's not watching indifferently from afar. He's not some, you know, clockmaker who wound up the clock and lets it run. He's an intimate part of your life, and he is here involved in every aspect of your life. And I see it every day when we pray this chaplet. We see miracles unfold. I see very vividly the reality of God. So let's pray for those who are away from the faith. Let's pray if your heart is closed that the Lord will open your heart and your mind, that he'll reveal himself to you, and that you can come into a more intimate relationship with him. We'll pray the chaplet when I return. Feel free to dial in. Chapel of Divine Mercy is straight in. 